Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we've got a very special episode for you. We will be joined by the co-writer of the Back to the Future trilogy, Bob Gale. Back to the Future is going to arrive on 4K for the first time on Tuesday, October 20th. So we got the chance to sit down with Bob Gale, and we got to ask him some questions, some burning questions we've always had about the Back to the Future movies. Adam and I are both big, big fans of these films. So we asked him about uh, the... Uh, the earlier drafts of Back to the Future Part 2, uh, the crazy schedule in making Part 1 and then shooting Part 2 and Part 3 back to back, uh, changing things up and changing the focus from Marty to Doc in Part 3. So uh, we also talked about sort of the the faux controversy over the Johnny B. Good scene in Back to the Future. And Bob Gale also talked about why there will not be a Back to the Future Part 4 as long as he and Robert Zemeckis are alive. So there's a we lot also, of... Also. Oh, yeah. We begin by asking about the John Mulaney bit. Yes, <laughs> before the <laughs> most important question was, does you have you heard about John Mulaney and <laughs> how this movie might have been pitched? <laughs> <laughs> Which actually led to a really interesting story of how they pitched the first Back to the Future and uh, what kind of studio notes, if any, they got back. Right. So it's it's a really fun conversation. Uh, Bob Gale's very forthcoming. Uh, and so if you are even remotely a fan of the Back to the Future films, I think you're really going to like this conversation. I wanted to start off by asking if you had heard the John Mulaney bit about how the film was, might've been pitched. Um, uh, maybe I did. Was that a, was that a YouTube video? It's been on YouTube. It's been passed around his, his sort of, he, he takes, uh, he's a little surprised. It's sort of. I think one of the central things is the relationship between Doc and Marty. And I was curious about how it actually went with uh, the relationship between this sort of chronically late high schooler and a disgraced nuclear physicist. Well, is the, is the question, did we ever get any pushback? Yes. I think the question is, is that what were there, what were the notes at the original pitch? None. None. There were none about that. No, (laughs) no. That shows you what a different world it was in the 80s um, that, okay, uh, we have this kid who was in the original first draft or two, started with Marty pirating Close Encounters of the Third Kind. (laughs) And uh, he was actually helping Doc Brown fund his experiments. So he was working at Doc's lab. Um, So you just kind of felt like, okay, uh, these guys are both kind of outcast rebels, and um, uh, that's a natural fit for them. And that was always, I mean, I mean, that's the sort of the unspoken uh, uh, explanation of why these guys are together. You know, uh, Marty is a rebel. He's like any self-respecting American teenager. Um, when people like Strickland tell him, you stay away from that Doc Brown. He's trouble. He's no good. What's the first thing you're going to do? <laughs> I got to check this guy out, right? <laughs> so um, Marty goes and checks the guy out. And we actually uh, have a, have the story of how they met in the first issue of IDW's Back to the Future comics. Marty goes there and he says, oh, man, this guy's really cool. Um, and Doc finds him there. And Doc thinks, okay, this kid was smart enough to to get through my security devices, I need an assistant. I'll give him a job, um, and that's and that's the basic backstory between these two guys. Um, 
And people say, well, where did, the, where did this come from? <clears throat> well, when I was growing up in, uh, in St. Louis, I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. My next door neighbor was a professional photographer and he had a dark room in his basement. And he invited myself and my two brothers to come over uh, one evening uh, to show us how film is developed. And this guy had all this really cool equipment in his basement. And he was, as far as you know, I was concerned, he was a real Doc Brown. Uh, he was working magic. He was doing all this great scientific stuff with all these chemicals. And, um, you know, I, I thought the guy was great. Um, I don't think he and his wife had any kids. So maybe he looked up on me and his, my brothers as, as, as sort of surrogate kids. But uh, uh, there was uh, nothing uh, untoward or uh, unethical or questionable about any of it. Well, it, it, something that really interesting about the franchise is kind of its legacy. And, you know, a lot of franchises have uh, big legacies. People love them and they go on and they live on. But this is something that, you know, I was curious specifically if you'd seen Rick and Morty. I mean, it's something that has not only uh, has a legion of fans, but those fans have then come on to create their own things that may be kind of loosely based on Back to the Future. And the animated program, Rick and Morty, is, you know, uh, it's no, I've, Doc I've and Marty. It. But yeah, 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 yeah. How do yeah. you feel about how do you feel about that? And well, uh, look, that I mean, you know, uh, uh, imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, as they say. Uh, Rick and Morty is a little uh, <laughs> um, a little hard R for me <laughs> now. And I'm not I'm not a prude. I love South Park. So it's not it just I don't know they cross. They cross the line a lot of times on that show to me. So I can't say that I'm a big fan of it, but I know that people are. And uh, I know uh, that we inspired it and we inspired a lot of other stuff. And I mean, that's the way it works. I mean, how many times in life do you hear people say, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse, right? And we, know, we all know where that came from. So it's, uh, and you know, the best, the best, most recent one was uh, Avengers Endgame, where the Avengers are actually sitting around talking about Back to the Future. Uh, what could be cooler than that for uh, Bob Zemeckis and me? Uh, one key moment in the original Back to the Future that I think kind of gets misinterpreted, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is that it seems that some people think that in the Johnny B. Good scene that Marty is claiming ownership of Johnny B. Good and that he is somehow the creator of it rather than just listening to playing Chuck Berry's song and then Chuck Berry hears it, which is a, a paradox of sorts. But, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of how that scene is, has been read. It's a joke, right? Right. I mean, that's when people say, well, uh, what is this? A white guy teaches a black guy how to play rock and roll. Um, no folks, it's not a documentary. <laughs> and if you think that that's how, Chuck Berry came up with the idea for Johnny B. Good, you know, get a life, as William Shatner used to say. Um, it's an homage. I mean, um, how could we not, if, if you're going to have a, invent rock and roll, how could it not be a Chuck Berry song and how could it not be Johnny B. Good, right? I mean, and Chuck Berry thought it was great. He was honored and he liked the joke. If he didn't, he would have said, um, you can use the song, but take out that joke. No, he got a big kick out of it. So uh, it's 
you know, he, he took it in the way that it was intended. It's an homage. Um, and of course, Chuck Berry wrote Johnny B. Good on his own. <laughs> and, uh, what, you're uh, saying no one time traveled and gave him the idea? Is that? No, no, no. Not, at least not to my knowledge. Okay. <laughs> Uh, one of you know, Back to the Future, uh, as Matt said, is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's a bona fide classic. But I'm I'm utterly fascinated by the production history of it because it was not an easy movie to make. Um, and I know you guys went through a lot of struggles, and it's kind of a miracle that it turned out as amazing as it did. And you know, obviously, one of those is recasting the lead role. Um, and I've always been curious how much you know once Michael J. Fox was cast, how much of the film had to be reshot at that point. Well, we had shot five and a half weeks with Eric Stoltz. Wow. So 35% of the movie, really. You know, the studios agreed with us, okay, you guys can do this, um, but see where you can make some other cuts. And this is kind of an interesting story because it shows you how necessity is the mother of invention and how having limits on your creativity can make you even more creative. The original opening of the movie uh, was not that great long tracking shot that we see in Doc Brown's laboratory. Um, we had this whole thing where uh, Marty gets stuck in detention and he sets off the uh, he sets off the fire sprinklers uh, in the in the classroom to get out of detention and escape to make to his get to his audition. And we realized that that was an awful lot of shooting an awful lot of logistics, and we didn't need any of that. And uh, we said, what can we do? Um, and it was a set that we hadn't finished, the classroom set. So we thought to ourselves, okay, let's save some money. Let's not finish this set, and let's figure out how we can start the movie uh, in a set that we already have. And we, of course, had Doc Brown's lab, and that's what we did. And, of course, it turned out to be way, way better than what was originally in the script. So there's an example of something that we changed because of the casting. Another thing that we did was um, Marty's uh, orange down vest. That wasn't what Eric Stoltz was wearing. Uh, he was wearing rather nondescript kind of dark jacket. And we thought at the time that uh, let's give him clothes where when he gets to the 50s, he can sort of blend in and not stand out. Well, then when it was time for us to rethink it, we decided, shit, we made a, we, we made a huge miscalculation here. This is a great opportunity for some fun and some humor uh, to put him in some clothes that nobody in the 50s have ever seen before. Uh, and I remember driving somewhere and walk, seeing, seeing somebody walking down the street wearing an orange down vest. I thought to myself, gee, Somebody in the 50s would think that's a light preserver, and the light bulb went off. And I said, Bob, we got to give him, got to give him an orange down vest, and uh, <laughs> we did. Well, I, you know, speaking of uh, changes being made for the better, I mean, obviously the ending of the film with the clock tower is now an iconic sequence. You can't imagine anything different. But if I recall correctly, in the original script, they were driving into a nuclear test site. Was that the original ending? Of yes, the film? that's that's right. Yeah. The idea that the uh, DeLorean was nuclear powered, literally, they needed to harness nuclear energy to send the time machine back to the future. And Bob and I had seen you know, the Atomic Cafe documentary, a movie called The Atomic Kid, which we pay homage to on the marquee 
of the town theater in 1955, uh, one of the most perverse movies ever made. Um, Mickey Rooney is a uranium prospector, and it takes place in the 50s, and he and his buddy come across one of these towns that they would build to destroy in a nuclear test site. Uh, they get caught in a nuclear blast, and uh, Mickey Rooney gets irradiated, and he ends up with these weird superpowers from being irradiated. I mean, it's just totally, totally twisted. Anyway, we were obsessed with the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could recreate one of these one of these towns and blow it up? Uh, and, you know, hey, okay, yeah, you're a writer. You can write anything in the script that you want. So we wrote this elaborate sequence in, and in the original version, the uh, time machine was built into a refrigerator, uh, which was a time chamber, and um, that was where Marty was going to be when the nuclear blast goes off. Well, when it came time to cut the budget, and this was this was before uh, we'd even cast uh, Eric Stoltz, the studio said, hey, you guys can make the movie, but cut a million dollars out. Uh, Bob and I looked long and hard at the script and said, what do we cut? How do we save a million dollars? And the most expensive thing was going on location, building this town. Uh, and we said, well, if we can cut that out, if we can cut going to location and building a town and do something on a location that we already have, namely the back lot, uh, that would save us the million dollars easy. And over a weekend, uh, we spent time walking around on the back lot, going back and forth to our offices, and we came up with the whole clock tower sequence. You know, flash forward to Indiana Jones Part 4, <laughs> and you'll see that uh, Steven Spielberg was inspired by the original ending of Back to the Future. I was going to ask, because I knew that fridge was in a bunch of drafts of Indiana Jones 4, survived all the way to the finished version of that film. So sounds like he was pretty keen on that idea. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're going to steal from somebody, steal from the best. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, something I want to ask you about. So in, I've read in earlier drafts and correct me if I'm wrong, but in earlier drafts of back to the future part two, they went back to 1967, uh, as sort of the climax of the, in the third act to get the, the almanac back. Is that, is that correct? Is that yes, actually yes, true? So yeah. I'm sort of curious what led you to sort of said, let's rather than going to 1967, let's return to not just 1955, but the events of the first movie. It was an idea that Bob Zemeckis came up with after he read the 1967 version. And, you know, we grew up in the 60s, so we, we wanted to put the 60s on screen. And, of course, later Bob did that in Forrest Gump. So you never throw anything away, right? Um, but Bob said, hey, we have an opportunity to do something that has never been done before. We can literally go back into the events of the first movie and look at them from a different point of view. And that idea was so original. It was so exciting that, you know, we had to do it. We absolutely did. So it was one of those things where, you know, sometimes you read one version of it and that inspires you to come up with a better version of it. So that's what we did. And then when you move to part three, uh, part three really fascinates me because it's so drastically <laughs> different than the first two. It goes 100 years in the past. Uh, the, the focus shifts from Marty to Doc. And I was kind of curious, sort of when you were, you know, writing part three, what the thought process was and sort of changing it up so drastically from the first two. Well, you know, as as uh, as kids that grew up in the 50s and 60s and loved Westerns, there was certainly the desire, uh, why wouldn't it be cool to, to do this in the old West? Um, 
But character-wise, what we did finally, uh, as as it all developed, was we have Marty and Doc dramatically and character-wise, they change places. Doc is the one who wants to do something that's basically irresponsible. He wants to stay in the West, you know, and there's that scene where Marty says, Doc, you're a scientist, you know, you got to do, don't do what's right in here, do what's right up here. And that is kind of a real uh, uh, important scene to show how these two guys have just really switched over 180 degrees and they are both, they both uh, taken on the attributes that the other one uh, had in the first movie. So it just seemed like uh, that was a, a beautiful way to uh, to bring these characters uh, through through character arcs, and um, uh, I think it works great. Yeah, it does. One of I mean, as if the production of the first movie wasn't hard enough, you guys decided <laughs> to shoot the of uh, the two sequels back to back. And I'm curious what uh, I mean. You know, we know Peter Jackson did that with the Lord of the Rings movies, and that you know happened with the Avengers movies. It's a little more common now, but I'm curious what it was like back then, kind of pitching that idea to the studio and then physically doing it, uh, and and you know actually making those two movies back to back. Because you know every interview I've read with other directors who have done that are just absolutely exhausted and drained by the end of that process. Oh yeah, it is draining. And uh, please let's give credit where credit is due, uh, and that goes to. Uh, Alexander Nelia Salkind, who first did this with the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers, uh, and they attempted to do that with uh, Superman, uh, with Dick Donner's Superman, which was supposed to be two movies, but they ran out of money, so they just made one, and well, you guys know the story of that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's where we got the idea from, from uh, the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers. And what had happened was, uh, when we came up with this idea of going to the West uh, for the last part of what was then Back to the Future Part Two, um, we ended up with a 165-page script. And it really didn't work because it was, instead of a three-act play structure, it was four acts. You know, we have, we have 2015, we have 1985A, we have 1955, and then we have 1885. And it was very strange to introduce all these new characters three quarters of the way through the picture. So after we had this script, I said to Bob, look, this doesn't work, Bob. Um, let me write this script and let these characters breathe, because I think we have enough here to make two pictures. So he said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I think it was over Thanksgiving uh, break. I sat down and I just powered through and wrote this 210-page script, and it broke very evenly right where the movies break now. And uh, we thought, okay, this is really interesting. Let's go to Universal and tell them that instead of giving them, we can't give them Back to the Future Part Two for uh, the summer of 1989. We will give them. We had this conversation. We said. We can't give you the movie for summer 89, but we'll give you Back to the Future 2 for Thanksgiving 1989 and Back to the Future 3 for summer of 1990. And Sid Scheinberg, uh, CEO of MCA, 
looked at us like we were absolutely insane. And he said, no, I just want the one movie. Give me Back to the Future 2. So we went back and I had our production manager budget the 165-page script and the 210-page script as two movies. And what we ended up with was a new conversation with the studio saying, okay, we can make one movie for $55 million, or we can make two movies for a total of $70 million. What do you want to do? Well, money talks, right? <laughs> and uh, they didn't want to spend $55 million on any movie because that would have been the most expensive movie ever made at the time. So the economics were was just too good. Now, what was it like doing it? It was grueling, of course. Michael J. Fox was still working on Family Ties. Luckily, it was not as strenuous as it was back in 1985. So we did that. We took a three-week break between the two movies. We had, of course, two editors working. And what, what, the, what was a godsend for Back to the Future 3 was that we were on location. And there were none of the distractions that people have with their family life uh, getting in the way of focusing on the movie. So there, but there was a period where in trying to get Back to the Future 2 ready for Thanksgiving while we were still shooting part three, uh, I, I went back down to Los Angeles and I dubbed the movie during the daytime uh, on the dubbing stage. And uh, for about two weeks after Bob wrapped shooting in the daytime up in Sonora, he jumped on a private plane. He flew down to Universal. Uh, we served dinner on the dubbing stage. Uh, we played back the reel that I mixed. He made his changes in it. Then he slept at the Universal Sheraton, got up at 4.30 the next morning, went to Burbank Airport, got on a plane, did the whole thing again. and. That went on for about two weeks. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, was there, I mean, as you were making part three while you were editing part two, was there anything like, oh, we could reshoot this scene or we could retool that one. Let's go back in and work on that while we have all the actors. No, really, that didn't happen. The only scene from part three that was shot out of sequence when Jennifer wakes up, we shot that at the same time. I mean, we were on location. All of our sets for Back to the Future 2 were struck. Oh, okay. so, you know, so there was no way that we were ever going to do anything like that. You know, the best that we could have done was, you know, put an actor against uh, a bald sky or a night sky or something like that. But it didn't it didn't occur. It didn't happen. Um, we had everything that we needed or we thought we needed. Uh, then, of course, we previewed and we we edited some stuff out. And uh, uh, again, it's not the <laughs> it's not the best way to make movies. <laughs> turned so, out fine <laughs> turned out all right it's, yeah. it's one of the best trilogies of all time and yeah. I, I think it's great as a trilogy and yet you know every few years or so there's new rumors surface like oh there's going to be a back to the future 4 there's going to be a reboot can you explain to our listeners the right situation about why that so so that they understand why that's not happening okay there's both the right situation and then there's a the creative answer okay uh, and, and let me talk about the creative answer first because sure. that's really more important. You know, we told a complete story with the trilogy. If we were to go back and make another Back to the Future movie, we have Michael J. Fox, you know, who's 50, who's 60 now, 
uh, or will be will be 60 next year, uh, and he's got Parkinson's disease. Um, do we want to see Marty McFly at age 60 with Parkinson's disease? Did we want to see him at age 50 with Parkinson's disease? Um, I would say no. You don't want to see that. Um, so, and you don't want to see Back to the Future without Michael J. Fox. Uh, people say, "Oh, you do it with somebody else." Well, really? Um, who are you going to get? Um, it, it's all that you're going to do is beg comparisons to the originals, and you're not going to match up. And we've seen this repeatedly with sequels uh, that go back to the well after many, many years. And they say, well, gee, yeah, okay, The Phantom Menace. Um, uh, I think maybe my life would have been better if I hadn't seen it. Um, uh, there, there are a lot of movies, a lot of extra sequels like that. So we didn't want to be those guys that were going to do a movie that was basically a money grab. I mean, yeah, Universal says, just, well, you guys will make a whole lot of money. We'll say, well, okay. We've already made a whole lot of money off of these movies, and we like them just the way we are. And as proud parents, we're not going to sell our kids in a prostitution. So that's the creative. That's the creative answer. The other one is that um, we have a understanding with uh, Spielberg and Amblin that there would never be another Back to the Future movie without us giving our blessing or being involved. And so. It's not going to happen. Good answer. <laughs> Before we let you go, I, I was kind of curious. I think Bob Zemeckis is one of the most innovative filmmakers working today. Absolutely. He pushed the boundaries so significantly with visual effects in those two sequels. Like you said, going back and like placing the characters in the same situations uh, in the 50s. Was there any studio pushback on that part? I mean, I, I guess you probably already answered the question with the budget, but um, a lot of that stuff had not been done before. No, creatively, there was absolutely no studio pushback because. We uh, we could be a little we could afford to be a little bit arrogant, uh, having made you know one of Universal's biggest money makers of all time. Uh, I, I remember one time uh, having a conversation with uh, with a lower level studio executive, uh, and I said uh, I said, uh, do you think we really need any advice as to how to make another Back to the Future movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. So they kind of just said, okay. Uh, and I wish, I wish more studio executives would take that point of view to say, okay, if you have a filmmaker that has made something that's extraordinary and he wants to go back and do something which he says is going to be extraordinary, you know, shoot the dice and, you know, keep your fingers crossed and hope that maybe he does and try not to second guess him. Because we don't see, I don't think, as much originality these days as we used to. And, you know, part of it is because movies are so damned expensive and everybody wants to second guess and say, okay, how are we going to market this? I mean, you think about Back to the Future, it's really quite amazing. Back in the days of the video rental store, Blockbuster and all, they didn't know what category to put it in. Is it science fiction? Is it comedy? Is it adventure? Is it coming of age? It's all those things. It crosses all through these genres. And you don't see that very often anymore. Um, and amazingly, it works. It's this crazy mix of it's a co 
comedy about time travel. Okay, Bill and Ted followed us up with that. They took that. They took that idea, but nobody, nobody even thought to go there. Um, and it's very humanistic too. Um, and the movie holds up so well over all these years because of the humanity, because we love those characters, and because despite all the bells and whistles of the time machine and 1.21 gigawatts and lightning and all that stuff, the heart of it is these characters. It's Marty relating to his parents. It's uh, George's odyssey to become a better human being, um, standing up for what he believes, standing up for Lorraine, standing up to Biff. I mean, these are timeless, the same way that Romeo and Juliet is timeless, because who hasn't been in a situation where you want to go out with somebody and your parents say, you better not go out with that person. Uh, um, so, so no, we didn't get pushback from the studio about how to make it. And I wish they would let filmmakers have their heads. Well, I think that's a pretty great note to leave it on. Uh, Bob Gale, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we're just gigantic fans of these movies and it's been an honor to, to speak with you. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, Back to the Future returns as Back to the Future, the musical. Uh, this is how we are doing a reboot. It's in a different genre. We hope to open it in London in May, barring any further COVID complications. We ran it for uh, about five weeks in Manchester uh, in February and March. Uh, I was involved uh, intimately with everything in it. And for anybody that wants more Back to the Future, this is a new way of getting it without us ruining your childhood and doing anything bad to the trilogy that everybody loves so much. So there you go. Excellent. Well, thank you again. And uh, Back to the Future uh, 4K comes out on October 20th. Looking better than it ever has. Thanks again to Universal Pictures and to Bob Gale for setting this up and taking the time to speak with us. We Always appreciate it. Again, Back to the Future trilogy is on 4K on October 20th. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. You can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you later this week to talk about the films of Aaron Sorkin. <laughs>